turkey on Thanksgiving, Christmas Eve service with family and friends followed by a great dinner afterward, fresh ground coffee, beans, and a pour over every morning. Those three things are three traditions I love. My pour over this morning was so good. Sitting on the front porch, still cool out, with my wife. I love traditions. Traditions, things we repeat, we're familiar with, we have good memories associated with them. We all have traditions that we we like and we're fond of. Sometimes we're making even new ones. Traditions can be awesome. Traditions can also be dangerous. They can be deadly even. I'm talking about religious traditions. And the reason I'm talking about that this morning is because we find ourselves in the 15th chapter of the gospel according to Matthew, where Jesus has religious traditionalists in his spiritual crosshairs. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn to the 15th chapter of the gospel according to Matthew. And I probably need to say that differently. They have Jesus in their crosshairs uh, and Jesus turns it into an opportunity to expose them uh, for being fraudulent. So we are going to talk about religious tradition today and we're going to talk about the dangers associated with religious tradition. Um, And so if you would like to have an outline this morning, the outline I'm going to be following would be seven dangerous aspects of religious tradition, seven dangerous aspects of religious tradition. And then at the end, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper because we're going to remember what the Lord Jesus has done for us. And then also before that, we'll end with the conclusion, we'll be answering some some pertinent questions that would relate to tradition because not all tradition is bad. There's good tradition, bad tradition, and we'll try to flesh some of that out. Ready to go? I hope you're ready. Number one on the list that we're going to look at, religious tradition can seem biblical. It can seem biblical. And let's look at the opening verse of the 15th chapter. It says this, Then Pharisees, religious leaders, and scribes, experts in biblical law, came to Jesus from Jerusalem. And even grammar experts tell us, people who know more than I do, say in the original text, Jerusalem is emphasized. So they're coming. Jesus is in Galilee. He's in the rural rural area, hard to say. And they're coming to him and they're coming from Jerusalem. They're coming from the capital city. They're coming as officials. Okay, this is where you cue the music. Death Star Imperial March music, right? Dun, 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 dun. Well, at least if you're a kid who grew up in the 20th century, that's how you think, okay? So it's, it's dark what's happening here. Uh, it wouldn't be the first time if it's because there were people spying on Jesus and they reported to the officials. It wouldn't be the first time that's what's going on here. So Jesus is becoming more and more popular and the, the, the leadership is not, not happy about it. And again, think of a theocracy. Think of, yes, they're religious leaders, but they're also tied in with the government. Yes, there's Roman occupation, but we still have Jewish governing authorities. And so they're sent by governing officials. It reminds me of that classic line from Ronald Reagan, former president, when he said, the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. They are from the government, and they're here to help, but they're not here to help. 
They're actually there to go after Jesus for being a bad actor. So with that in mind, let's keep going. And it says in verse 2, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. So I ask you, what's the accusation? Other than the obvious accusation. What are they, what are they getting at? What's the, what's the gist of this? Well, the accusation is Jesus is, is a lawbreaker. Okay? He's breaking God's law. He doesn't care about God's law. That's, that's the gist of the accusation, at least in their minds, as we will see uh, where things go. There, the theological word for it, because some of you love yourself some theological words, uh, it would be antinomianism. Okay, So anti against namas for law, anti-law. So they're accusing, in essence, Jesus of being an antinomian. He does whatever he wants to do. He just makes it up as he goes. And he doesn't have any regard for divine standards. That's, that's the accusation. And my question for you, my next question for you is, if it's true that Jesus is an antinomian, how big of a problem is that? It's a huge problem for you. And it's a huge problem for me if we're Christians. Because if he's against the law, he's a violator of God's law. So he's not God's perfect and holy sacrifice. He's not the spotless lamb of God. Not only that, that's in the negative. In the positive, he's a liar because he, and he, he doesn't keep his promises. Because remember back in chapter 3, he said he does what he does to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill God's laws. So if he is an antinomian, there's no hope. He needs to be confronted by the religious authorities. If he's a breaker of God's law, they have every reason to be doing this. And it looks kind of biblical when this happens. It looks kind of biblical because this ceremonial hand-washing thing you're supposed to do before meals, well, it's not actually in the Old Testament. It's not, not actually in God's law. But, you know... Priests were required, according to the book of Exodus, to do it. And when we love us some religious tradition, and when we love to control people, and we think what's good for some people must be good for everybody, we do things like these religious leaders had done. And they created a whole book called Hands. Extra-biblical, authoritative uh, hands. It's all about the ins and outs of ceremonial hand-washing. You see, the problem wasn't uh, like in my house. I have a law, dad law, mom law, Abendroth law. You wash your hands before you eat because it's hygiene. And if you don't wash your hands before you eat, go back to the bathroom and wash your hands. That's not what's going on here. What's going on here is ceremonial. God accepts you. You can be purified if you clean your hands as a ceremony, as going through these motions because it was good enough for the priest. It must be good enough for us. And so now we've made it obligatory, an obligation for everybody. You want to be godly? You do the ceremony. That's what's going on here. And it sure looks, maybe sounds biblical because oftentimes traditionalism uses Bible verses. And they would have been able to use Bible verses. So it looks like it's right. seems to be right. And so they seem to be right in confronting Jesus. Exodus chapter 30, verses 17 to 20 is the text I didn't mention earlier. And the hands section comes from the Jewish Mishnah. Extra biblical teachings elevated to the level of biblical teachings. 
Now, I should ask you, since we're in the ism mode, um, to really satisfy your thirst for another ism word, those of you who like them so much. So antinomianism is what they're accusing Jesus of, even though they don't use the, the label. What's the ism when uh, we use when people say something is God's requirement when it's not actually God's requirement? It's easy, right? That's legalism. So the, the two are the two, two opposite errors. Both are bad. Legalism would be when you say you must do this to be spiritual, you must do this to be accepted by God, but God hasn't actually said that. That would be legalism, and Jesus is going to take the gloves off and go after them for legalism because it's damaging, it's deadly, it's the bad kind of tradition. Ready to move on? Hope you are. We're going to number two. Religious tradition can interfere with true devotion or true obedience. It can interfere, and Jesus is going to really go after them here in verse 3. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God, the true law of God, for the sake of your tradition? It's interesting how he puts the two together. Your tradition actually gets in the way of you doing the actual right thing, which... I would suggest to you is a pretty common feature of legalism. We get all caught up into all of these things that pastor, brother, reverend, father, bishop, so-and-so taught us. And we're so caught up in these extra biblical things that we actually end up forgetting the main things. And that's what's happening here with these folks. Maybe things that seemed to be a good idea at one point in time, they were preference or something like that, have been elevated, and now they're missing the big idea And that's what happens with traditionalism sometimes. It's as if Jesus now says, thank you for confronting me. I'm now going to confront you. Verse 4 says, for God commanded. God commanded. That's important to stress. God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Verse 5 says, but you say, notice the contrast. God commanded, but you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. What's going on is this, uh, to go back to verse 5, what you would have gained from me is given to God. In Mark's gospel account, he uses actual, the actual shorthand label for it. It's korban. So it's an Old Testament Hebrew word. It's the word for offering. And at this point in time, even you find it in archaeological digs, you see this inscription on different things, korban. It, it became trendy, religiously trendy. It became a tradition that was popular that uh, many people were, instead of taking care of their elderly parents which is an obligation, it's reasonable, it makes sense, it's a biblical obligation according to Old Testament law that you would take care of your parents and honoring them. Instead, you'd say, I have a special bank account, figuratively speaking. I have a special bank account and it's for supporting ministry and it's supporting people like Pharisees and scribes and the temple and it's labeled Corbin. In other words, given to God. 
I put it that way because I'm trying to sound super pious, super spiritual. You know, I'm so godly that I follow this new special. Maybe it's an old special tradition that I'm so committed to God that my Corbin account is in effect. Sorry, Mom. Sorry, Dad. Um, Given to God. Well, it's ugly. It's patently ugly. But again, apparently at this point in time, it's become super popular. Ah, if you want to be godly, support us. We've got this special tradition. And I love it that they even use that fancy Old Testament label, even though they're not speaking Hebrew at this time. Because it reminds me of how many today, even religious leaders who are legalists, who mislead people because they've studied original languages. Big deal. All kinds of heretics have studied original languages. Don't be a sucker. Okay? Uh, oh, Corbin. Oh, it sounds so good, right? It sounds so spiritual because they're using Old Testament language. Sort of like we're suckers today. Oh, they quoted Greek words. Well, Greek and Hebrew are important and so is, so is Aramaic. But oftentimes, oftentimes, not always, sometimes maybe I should say, it's just a way of having control of people because I know more than you do and I therefore can control you with my extra biblical traditions and bind you in them. And when it happens, you probably will miss the forest from looking at the trees. Oftentimes legalism, traditionalism keeps us from doing the main obvious clear things. I have a couple of illustrations. Don't know if I have time I'll go for one of them at least. Um, I have one religious one and one non-religious one, but I'll, I'll just use the one where a, a sweet woman who was about the age of my mother was here, so she was very young. <laughs> so she was visiting, and before the services start, I, I mentioned this one other time, so you may have heard it before, but before the service started, she was in the bookstore, and she about two minutes later was leaving. And I thought that was kind of odd. I was about outside, and I said, so, you know, can I help you? Service hasn't even started yet. So um, she saw that we had translations in our bookstore other than the King James translation. And so that was the issue. And so she started giving me her King James only talking points and rhetoric. And uh, I listened and was patient. And I said, I think it's a fine translation, um, but it's not the only translation. And that's why we study Greek and Hebrew. And I was using it in the right senses. And if you'd like to use it here, you're welcome to. It's a beautiful literal translation. You get the idea. But it's King James onlyism, which is a cult. Okay, uh, literally, there was a man who visited Omaha Bible Church one Sunday who said, "It's good enough if it's good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for me." <laughs> and he was serious. I'm not saying this lady would have said that, but it was just bizarro world. So um, that said, I just tr- was truly concerned. Literally, I, I looked at her like she was my mom, and she seemed to want to learn things. And so I just started asking her basic things about the gospel and about Christ and basic Christian kind of things. And she was getting answers wrong or not knowing. And I wasn't trying to belittle her. And I said, if you just stay, I promise you this. We will help you from your King James Bible understand the glories of Christ and what the gospel is all about. You came to the right place. Would you please stay? And she didn't stay, sadly, and it didn't end well. My point is, oftentimes, and the illustrations could go on and on, when some religious leader gets someone to affirm something as biblical that's not biblical, 
the tail ends up wagging the dog. And before you know it, they don't know ABCs, one, two, threes. These individuals Jesus is confronting don't commit to ABCs and one, two, threes, but they sure are rabidly committed to their traditions. Don't let that be you. Don't let that be you. Let's move on to the next one. The next one, number three, religious tradition can reveal gross hypocrisy worthy of condemnation. It can reveal gross hypocrisy worthy of condemnation. And at this point in time, for contrast, Jesus is not addressing the sweet little old lady that I was talking to, or the sweet younger lady that I was talking to, excuse me, okay? He's going after the leaders, and he takes a different tone with different people, so I want to make sure I clarified that. Verse 7 says, you hypocrites, you actors, you fakers, it's the word for actor. You're pretending to be someone you're not, okay? You, you poser, if you want to use that word. You claim to, to be all for God. You, you have the right book. You say you believe the book, the right language, the, the right names for God. But the reality is Jesus is exposing them and he's calling them fake, illegitimate, not real. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, quoting Isaiah 29, this people honors me with their lips. Again, the right vocab. But their heart is far from me. Verse 9 says, in vain do they worship me. I'm going to pause just for a second before we go past the comma. In vain do they worship me. They're hypocrites, fakers, hearts far from God. How, how would we know that? Keep reading. After the comma, he tells us how we know. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Hmm. That's, a, that's a real interesting way to be able to make an evaluation. How does he know they're fake? How does he know their worship is empty vanity and their hearts are not even in the same zip code as God? Because they elevate their teachings to the status of settled, common, sure, clear Christian teachings, which is what doctrines are. Notice here, uh, doctrines aren't bad according to Jesus. Doctrines divide according to Jesus. So if you say my teaching is legitimate Christian teaching and it's not, that's, that's, that divides, it separates. And we're going to see more about that in a moment. But for now, notice it's really interesting how Jesus makes, makes the evaluation. And none of us are Jesus, so be careful. But I would encourage you to, in the spirit of Christ, have the same approach to evaluating because people can seem like the nicest people in the world and they can have all the right vocabulary and all the right Christian ease and fit into celebrity pop Christian culture and the list goes on. But when they elevate as standard Christian teaching that which has not been revealed from God in his word, Jesus says they're fakers. So I would encourage you to be in the habit of saying to people or to saying, where... What biblical text is that based upon? Where is that in the Bible? And, and I don't mean kind of this cheap shot, if it doesn't spell it out exactly like that in one Bible verse, it can't be true. No, many things that are Christian doctrines are Christian teachings, Christian doctrines because of multiple texts in different testaments. But get in the habit of saying, what biblical texts is that doctrine based upon? 
Because you might be dealing with a faker, a hypocrite, and that's not good for your soul. Jesus, as the good shepherd, is going to help his people to protect them, to provide for them. I want to be that kind of person, careful, discerning. And Jesus is doing that with them. Here's a good quote. When you teach as doctrines what are in actuality the commandments of human beings, you reveal that you're honoring God only with your lips and that your worship is actually vain. Another good quote. When someone teaches that God says something or requires something that he does not, in fact, require in his clear revelation, it is not only legalism, it is hypocrisy. Pretty strong. But that's not stronger than Jesus' words. Think of all the things that are taught in the name of God. A lot of things are taught in the name of God. But not all the things that are taught in the name of God are from God. And Jesus is being kind and gracious enough to confront those who would say so. Let's move on. Number four, religious tradition can be the wrong solution to the wrong problem. Religious tradition can be the wrong solution to the wrong problem. In other words, if we make the wrong diagnosis, we'll offer the wrong cure. Okay? We're going to see this in a couple sections. Verse 10 says, And he, Jesus, called the people to him, so he calls them away from the false teachers to him, and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth. You'll need to follow this closely, by the way. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, that makes them spiritually unfit, defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. What do you suppose that means? I think it's a bit mysterious. I think it's a bit ominous at this point. And if you think that, I think you're in good company. If you don't think it, that it's because you read ahead. But if you think that's a bit ominous, you're in good company. In fact, you're in apostolic company. So if you're feeling kind of apostolic, okay, uh, <laughs> we all want to feel apostolic. I say that because Peter later is going to say, uh, Jesus, could you tell us what that means? So at this point, I'm still reserving, withholding judgment, going, we could take a stab at it and try to figure it out, but what is this about? What is he saying? Well, we're going to return to it because he returns to it, so we're going to kind of leave it there for now. But by way of preview, the religious leaders have introduced this sacred so-called tradition to deal with what they think is the human predicament. And they've misdiagnosed the problem. And so they're offering the wrong solution. They're offering the wrong cure. We're going to come back to this one because he does. So... Um, Let's just hold it for now there. Number five, religious tradition can make people easily offended. It can make people easily offended. These people sure, sure are. I kind of like it. I won't lie. How about verse 12? Get ready for some snark. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Right? And I'm like, do you think? Right? Do you think they were? And this is going to pattern now. Remember in Nazareth, we just saw that not too long ago, when Jesus teaches there to his own hometown, they are offended. And now it's the official religious leaders, they are offended. 
But if you stop and think about it, if you're speaking the truth, the truth, and it doesn't align with their truth, there's going to be a problem and there's going to be offense. Then think about the Pharisees and all they have vested in this or invested in this, whichever you prefer. Of course they're going to be offended, right? Because they're going to have to admit that they're wrong and that their parents were wrong and maybe their grandparents were wrong and their friends are wrong. And they're going to have to, if they admit that, then they're going to lose. Here's a big one with religious traditionalists, legalists. They're going to lose power and they're going to lose control, not to mention all the other things they might lose. But if I want to manipulate you and control you and lord it over your life, I'm just going to start having extra biblical things, attaching Bible verses to them, and I'll have you right where I want you. It's been happening and happens again and again and again and again. And the good shepherd, Jesus, exposes them for this, and it makes sense that they are offended. They're offended. Now, we can all be offended so don't get me wrong. I don't want to say that they're the only ones who can be offended, but it's amazing how easy it is to offend a religious traditionalist legalist when you say, what's the biblical basis for that? And there's all kinds of offense. It's one thing if we want to argue over texts and the significance and nuance and because that's outside of us. It's objective. But so many times our traditionalism, I'm using it that way, and our legalism somehow comes from us. And it's very offensive. It's even more so offensive because you're attacking me and, and my people and my heritage. And These folks are really offended. I'm thankful Jesus offends them because he's doing it out of love and care for other people. If the truth exposes their quote-unquote truth, it's a house of cards. Stakes are high. Let's move on to number six and then do number seven. Number six, religious tradition can reveal who's on which team. Who's on which team. It's a metaphor I like. It's not the one Jesus uses. He's going to use a different metaphor. But sometimes it's helpful to figure out who's on which team. Are are you on the Lord's side or are you on a different side? And based upon the metaphor he's going to use, are you on the Lord's side or do you play for the devil's? Well, it helps us to know who's on which team. It, it, it reveals that. Let's go ahead and see. Jesus is going to make this clear. He, he answered in verse 13, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. And if the Pharisees and the scribes are over there, Jesus is staring at them, if not doing that. Every plant that my Father did not plant, they're not from God will be rooted up. It's a figure he used earlier for judgment. And if he still has on his mind the parable of the the wheat and the tares, and it's still on my mind, it was in chapter 13. Perhaps it's even stronger. They're not of my father. And they'll be rooted up. You'll figure out who's on which team. They might be associated with the right religion and have the same vocabulary and have the same book, but just know that they're going to be exposed for who they are. Then it says in verse 14, let them alone. Here's Jesus' counsel to people like you and people like me. Let them alone. They're blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Pretty straightforward. Jesus is not insulting blind people. 
Jesus has been healing blind people. He's making a simple point. You wouldn't want a blind Uber driver. They don't make good guides. They can't see. And they can't avoid danger. And so these religious leaders, Jesus is telling people like us, if you want them to lead you, you know where they're headed. And if you're with them and attached to them as nice as they might be, it's calamitous. Don't follow them. You can know they're on a different team and they lose. So let them alone. Stay away from them. Pretty strong. Pretty strong. I would suggest to you that's actually a form of judgment. Not that we're called to render final judgment and final verdict, but let them alone. Abandon them. Like God sometimes, as a form of judgment, leaves them alone. You're going to act Christ-like and say, I'm going to leave them alone. They don't play on the same team. We know they don't play on the same team, among other reasons, because they say God says things that God doesn't say. And that just ends badly. That just ends badly. Now let's move on. Number seven. Religious tradition can miss the heart of the matter. Religious tradition can miss the heart of the matter. This just takes us back to number four. It's exactly the same as number four. I'm just saying it differently. In number four, I said religious tradition can be the wrong solution to the wrong problem. This is super helpful. I hope you get this. I so badly want you to get this. Time to get this. How about number verse 15? But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Verse 17 says, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? Last word could be translated, goes into the toilet. Okay? So here's a little biology and plumbing 101. Okay? This is Jesus saying, am I going too fast for you? No. (laughs) Right? So let's think this through. Food goes in the mouth, goes into the stomach, and you know how the rest of it goes. That's what he's saying. And he's, he's setting up the disciples to see and for us to see Their so-called biblical solution to your problem doesn't address your real problem, okay? It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. What goes in your mouth goes in your stomach and goes in the toilet. Out of sight, out of mind. That's not really a problem. But let's keep reading. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart And this defiles or makes corrupt, spiritually unclean, if you will. This defiles a person. So my question to you, based upon that, what is he saying? What's the problem? The the, the problem is your heart. Your problem is your heart. In other words, we we have a you problem. I, I have a me problem. At the very center and core of my being, our our spiritual mission control center is the problem. And this begs the question, well, if that's the case, what in the world are we going to do? 
I mean, it's one thing for someone to say, well, you know, if you just ceremonially wash your hands and then it's clean and it takes care of everything and you're not defiled, translation, God will accept you. I can do that. But if the real problem is the real you, internally your heart, no amount of antibacterial spiritual soap is ever going to deal with that. So they are seeing the human condition as one thing and offering a certain kind of solution. And Jesus is saying, that's not the problem. And therefore, that's not your solution. You are the problem. And this isn't good news at all. This is bad news. 18, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. So then he goes on to say in verse 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts. Those are bad. We would all agree. They would have agreed. Those are bad. Those are sinful. Murder, sinful. Everybody agrees. Adultery, sinful. Sexual immorality, sinful. Theft, sinful. False witness, sinful. Slander, sinful. And the list could go on, but there's a little sampling. Those are all bad things. Those are all problematic things. These are what defile a person. But based on what he just said, those things actually come from the real you, your heart, which is the real problem. And then he goes on to say in the negative, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So Jesus has masterfully, wonderfully, helpfully to us so we're not misled, snookered, deceived, whatever word you'd like to use, hoodwinked, Spiritually, all of these so-called solutions aren't solutions because they don't deal with the literally heart of the matter. And we're left with saying, then what in the world do we do? Then what's the solution? How could there be any hope? And if you're asking that kind of question, you're so close to the kingdom of God. Chapter 1, verse 21, this whole grand narrative has been teaching one thing ultimately, name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So here we are desperate because it's a heart problem. We need salvation to come from above, from the outside for someone to save us, to deliver us, to rescue us. Wonderfully, this reminds me of a certain Pharisee in a different gospel account. John chapter 3, that Pharisee's name was anybody? His name was Nicodemus. How in the world can we be born a second time? How in the world can we, can we have new life? Translation, in addition, a new heart. How could this possibly happen? Great question. And Jesus teaches him in John chapter 3 that it has to come from above. Remember, Jesus comes from above, and Jesus comes from above, and Jesus is the one who gives His Spirit. Regeneration happens by the power of the Spirit. This is all about Christ giving us all that we would ever need for eternal life. Christ and all of His benefits, sometimes we say. He's the solution to the heart problem. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, and I will give you a new heart, new covenant promise there in Ezekiel 36, verse 26. It comes from God. I will give it to you. It can't be got. <laughs> it can't be bought. It can't come from somebody who knows Hebrew and Greek. And as long as you follow their plan, I will give it to you. It has to come from him.
Sinners need Christ and all of his benefits. I love the way Jesus turns a real bad confrontation into a great opportunity for his people. And I hope it helps you and encourages you that way. And I hope it helps you to live your Christian life. Let's ask and answer some questions that might relate to this. And then we'll eat and drink in remembrance of him, the one who gives us new life. First question I wrote down because I hoped and thought maybe some of you would be asking it. How do we avoid the displeasure of Jesus for bad religious traditions? How do we avoid the displeasure of Jesus for bad religious traditions? And the simple answer, I hope you would know and agree, avoid saying that God requires things that God doesn't say he requires. That's the clear starting point. You'd be better off saying God requires absolute perfection because that would actually be true in light of Matthew chapter 5 and that takes care of everything. And then we say, then what should we do? Well, we need Christ. But be careful about telling people God requires a certain thing when he doesn't require it. It's classic legalism. And Jesus hates legalism. It keeps people from the kingdom. Another answer to that question would be, I found helpful, would be call traditions what they are. Anybody? Traditions. <laughs> if something's a tradition, call it a tradition. That's easy. Uh, we stand for scripture reading and whenever I can, I call it a tradition because I want us to understand it's a tradition. We thought it would be a good idea to show honor to God and his word. If you're able to stand, let's stand for the reading of scripture. It's our tradition. Here's another one that you might find interesting. Um, Christmas Eve service. I love Christmas Eve service. I already mentioned that. It's one of my favorite traditions. But it's a tradition. It's definitely a tradition. In fact, did you know that lots of Protestants early on after the Reformation didn't have Christmas Eve services? And they didn't have Christmas Eve services because of strong convictions. Because... In the Roman Catholic system, it is a holiday, a holy day, and it is required that you come to Christmas to have your sins forgiven, and it is a sin if you don't come. And so many, many a Protestant, not all of them, said, the Lord gave us the Lord's day, and he requires that for his people, and that's one day a week. Don't show up here on Friday night because God does not require it of you and how dare we require of you what God doesn't require of you. Kind of interesting, huh? I love Christmas Eve. I'll say because I have a, a Protestant conscience that bothers me sometimes. I'll say, if you're not doing anything on Christmas Eve... <laughs> and you would find it helpful to join us for our tradition, uh, we would love to have you so that we can be together. It's just my conscience kind of troubling me just a little bit. Um, and if you say, I'm uncomfortable with it because of its history, may the Lord bless you. It's fine. It's not a sin to not come. Let's call traditions traditions. And then we don't force people and we don't bind their conscience a big part of the Protestant Reformation because of the book of Galatians, by the way, so it's biblical, but it's also historic, was to give Christians freedom. If God says it's his law, you must. And you'll find out you're a lawbreaker, so you need Christ as a substitute, lawkeeper and atoner and resurrection. But once you belong to Christ, you want to do what he says. But you're free to do other things 
as you see fit according to prayer and wisdom because your conscience isn't bound. So sometimes, well, there's so many things we talk about. Next one, another question. Number two, how do creeds and confessions relate to religious tradition and traditionalism? Well, in their worst, if the tail wags the dog, it's a problem. And if a creed or confession or a catechism says that the church it belongs to receives new revelation from God and can tell you what to do, those are bad. Those are under the ire of Jesus. But the best creeds and confessions and catechisms go out of their way to say the Bible and the Bible alone alone is revelation from God, special revelation. This is not special revelation. We're not that. And we, the best ones say, and we actually don't even believe in any new revelation. It's only scripture. So what are they then? They're writing down a certain church or group of churches understanding of what the Bible teaches. So it can be examined, so it can be critiqued, so it can be evaluated, so people can be held accountable, so we can unify or divide based upon our understanding of Scripture. So in their best, they're not legalistic. They're actually for help. Maybe one more question. One more question. Oh, I have lots of things I want to talk about now. I want to talk about no creed but Christ and where that came from, the Stone Campbell movement in the early 1800s, disciples of Christ, churches of Christ, Christian churches. All not helpful. I want to talk about Arianism. Not helpful. I want to talk about Athanasius. Helpful. We don't have time. We'll do it another time. Next question, we'll end on this. Number three on my list. What about matters that the Bible does not address? What about matters that the Bible doesn't address? It would be helpful if we said the Bible doesn't address that. Instead of me pretending that it does and giving you the biblical view on something that the Bible doesn't address. There are lots of things the Bible doesn't address. The Bible deals with, shorthand, things for eternal life, and godliness, godly living. The Bible talks about a lot of things, but there's a lot that the Bible doesn't talk about. It's not a medical book. It's not a math book. It's not a science book. And the, it's not a business book. And the list could go on and on and on. And we have Christian freedom. We have common grace. We're made in God's image. We do amazing things. Well, the Bible doesn't really talk about that. But in legalism, you, you need me to tell you what the Bible says about everything in your life. Well, that's that problem because the Bible actually doesn't tell you about everything in your life. And so we have to be careful to say, oh, the Bible doesn't talk about that. You're free to do whatever you'd like to do. And I'd love to talk more about that, but I hope you're at least thinking in terms of, if the Bible doesn't say, let's not try to make the Bible say. Let's not try to make the Bible say. There's a freedom. Okay, we should pray and be done for this morning, even though I'm itching to do more. Maybe third hour, you should come back. I might have time for all five. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that we're not perfect. We're not even perfect in our understanding of the text we looked at today. I certainly am not perfect in my explanation of it. But we're thankful that he does speak with clarity and he is speaking the truth. And we can certainly understand enough to know dangers 
and that we can look to him because he and he alone has the words of eternal life. Thank you that it was the Lord Jesus who instituted the supper for us that in a very simple way, but profound way, until he returns, we would eat bread and we would drink wine in remembrance of him so that we might know that even as we learn today, he and he alone can deal with our heart problem. May our eating and drinking today, yes, be an act of worship, an act of encouragement, but also may it be an act where we're reminded to not trust legalism, but to only trust in the Lord Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.